Well, we are looking at some of the natural conditions that help churches thrive. We're coming into spring. I think, I hope, we're supposed to get snow like tomorrow or something again, but uh, Calgary weather is kind of like that. But the promise of spring is there. We felt a little bit in the sunshine. So I know a number of you are getting plants ready, either for growing food or for making flowers or for doing the things you do in the soil, which I no longer do because I'm useless at it. I, uh, plants, uh, we're kind of a hospice for plants. They come to us when they're ready to die. And so I don't really uh, do a lot with plants. And so just a little disclaimer there as we talk about organic uh, the thing I do know, though, is there's some basic needs for things to grow. Plants need what? They need soil. They need water. They need what else? Sunshine. They need a few things just to help them to thrive. And if they don't have those key elements, they don't thrive. Well, I think the same thing is in the church. I think sometimes in the church we think, well, what should we be doing? What do we need to get done? And we get distracted by all the many things we could do and forget at the core, there are some essential core elements that we need in order to thrive. And so as Paul writes to Timothy and Titus in these pastoral letters, he reminds them of what's really important. And that's why we're looking at them over these next few weeks. What's really important? What do we need to hang on to? How do we thrive together as a community of faith? Well, the only way we're going to thrive is by paying attention to these essential things. First of all, Timothy says, of priority importance is what? Prayer. We looked at that last Sunday. And not just any prayer. I mean, pray for people. Pray for all kinds of people. Pray even for the people you don't like. Pray for the people that you're fighting with. I mean, that changes things when we begin to pray for other people. But Paul's very specific when he talks to Timothy about prayer. He says, also remember, pray for those in authority over you. And the connection is this. When the church, when the local church begins to pray for those in authority, then the local church also has the best opportunity to thrive. Do we ever think about that? So there's people in authority over us in this congregation, our elders and our pastors and those whom we've appointed. Are we praying for them? There's people in authority that are in our community. We think about our teachers. Students, do you pray for your teachers? Or do you just grin and bear it as you go in every day at class? Pray for your teachers. It changes things. Are we praying for our local counselors? Are we praying for our members of parliament? Do we pray for our prime minister? I know some of the prayers that you pray. Not those prayers. But Timothy is very specific. We need to pray for those in authority over us. Even Caesar, Timothy is talking, or Paul is talking about to Timothy. Even this person that wasn't terribly friendly toward the church. We pray that God might bring him to himself, that God might show him the truth of his salvation in Jesus. We pray for these good things. And so prayer is absolutely essential. The church will thrive, says Paul, when we pray for those in authority over us. That's part of the essential elements, just like water and air and, and uh, soil and sunlight. Okay, a second priority we're going to look at today. And the second priority is this, sound teaching is absolutely essential if we're going to thrive as a community. We need to be in the Word, and we need to know the Word. This is so incredibly important. Paul talks a lot about it. 
both in Timothy and in Titus. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says this, Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, and if you're in a city that has four seasons in a week, preach the word all the time. Preach the word. That's a priority that we want to do in our congregation. It's interesting, during the time of the Reformation, if you cast your mind back to Reformation teaching, maybe you got it in school and have forgotten, but during the time of the Reformation, it wasn't just ideas that were moved around. It was actually furniture that was moved around too. Furniture in the places of worship. Uh, there used to be, uh, in places of worship, and still today, the high altar would be the central part of worship together. And Reformation churches said, no, we need to get back to the Word, and so that's why the pulpit's at the center. We assume that this is just a natural place to be preaching, but Reformation churches said, no, we need to make the Word central again. And that's the way it was in the early church too. Maybe not a pulpit like this or a congregation sitting like this, but the idea of gathering around the Word and gathering around God's Word is absolutely central to a thriving community. And so that's what Paul says to Timothy. But he also tells them something that must have been really, really hard. Because these are young guys. These are young pastors going into very difficult situations. I mean, Ephesus, it was known for the Temple of Diana, great worship place in the Greek tradition. And Titus was sent to Crete. And Cretans were known for to be liars and gluttonous and all these kind of things. And these two young men were sent into these locations and they were told to do something specific. Silence the false teachers and remove them. Can you imagine having that challenge as a young man going into territory that would not be familiar to you? Not only preach the word, not only teach sound doctrine, but also silence the false teachers and remove them. It's kind of like pulling out the bad weeds in order that the gospel might grow in good soil. So that's part of what we need to wrestle with as we look through this idea of sound teaching. Well, fake news. Are you familiar with that term at all? Fake news, that's what we yell at people when we just have run out of arguments sometimes, right? We're just like, fake news, open your eyes. You know, we do those kind of things because we've just run out of logical things to say. Well, I've discovered that fake news didn't actually originate with Donald Trump. I mean, who knew? <laughs> actually, this was kind of fascinating. Maybe this has no fascination to you, but it does to me. Although false news has been around since you know, time immemorial, the actual term fake news was first used in the 1890s. Can you believe it? It was used in the 1890s to describe the sensational reports that newspapers were including in order to sell more copy. They were actually just making stuff up, and they were like over-dramatizing some of their reports in order to sell more copy. But today, we understand fake news is even more sinister than that, right? And sometimes we use fake news or false reports for character assassination or to sway people in a political direction, right? And so we've come to a point where it's hard to know what's true and what's not. Does anybody feel that sometimes? How do we know what's true? How do we know what to believe these days? Fake news erodes our trust in institutions and leaders. It creates suspicion among the masses, right? It polarizes the audience. You have to pick a side and then defend it at all costs. And fake news leads to harmful actions. Like the guy who entered a pizza place 
armed to the teeth, ready to blow the joint up because he believed it was a pedophile ring. True story. You can look it up later. And so fake news takes a hold of us and actually changes the way we behave if we're not careful. Well, there was a sense of fake news in the early church. And that's what these young pastors had to address. The fake news was known as false teachings and false teachers. Sometimes they went by fancy names. We call them the Gnostics or others, maybe the Arians later on. And we have lots of names for them. But I'm just going to give you three broad categories of fake news proprietors that were in the early church. First of all, there's a group called the Deceivers. And as you read through Timothy and Titus, this will come up a number of times. The Deceivers were just in it for the money. They had a great ability to speak in public, and they convinced lots of people to support them, and they made great promises, and they made it easy for people to believe, and they were in it for the money. If you just send me $29.95 three times a month, I will pray for you, and whatever you want will be granted. Have we heard stuff like that? We have. Deceivers are still with us today. This group of people that see an opportunity with the gospel to sway an audience and make some bank. That's what some of the deceivers were doing. Well, what harm is that? I mean, just leave them alone. Just ignore them. And if people want to give to them, what harm is it? Well, Paul says to Timothy and others, these people cause great harm, not only in the church, but in society at large. They're all talk and no walk. They know how to talk the big game, but they don't play. They know how to talk things that are spiritual, but their lives don't reflect the truths of what they're even claiming. And in doing so, they discredit the gospel. Have you ever felt that way when you see some of the televangelists whose lives just go off the rails? And then forever you go around your workplace or your school or even at home with your families and people are like, oh, Christians, just like that guy, right? And it undermines the gospel. It discredits the gospel. These are the deceivers that lead people astray, especially for profit, for what they can earn out of it. Second group of false teachers, we'll call them the deniers. This comes up all throughout the New Testament. Paul and Peter and John even takes a crack at these guys. The deniers basically were saying that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh, that Jesus came as kind of a spiritual being. They saw themselves as being super spiritually elite, that they had the corner on special knowledge. And if you really wanted to follow the way that you had to tap into their special knowledge, sometimes these are called the Gnostics because they claim to have special knowledge. Well, John calls them not Gnostics, but he calls them Antichrist. Sometimes we, we associate that term with the book of Revelation. You know what doesn't occur in the book of Revelation? It occurs in one of John's letters. It occurs a couple of times, and he defines it. He says an antichrist is someone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh. That's another group of false teachers. Why is that so harmful? Well, so what? I mean, sometimes you pass along information, and it might not be totally accurate, but as long as you get the general idea... As long as you've kind of followed the teaching of Jesus, won't that be okay? Is it so important, the, this whole incarnation mystery? Well, yeah, it is. And the New Testament authors say it's incredibly important 
Because once we make it just a spiritual thing, that special knowledge, then all of our physical attributes don't matter anymore. That was the problem with the Gnostics. They said, this body, these things, do what you want with them. You can either, either overindulge it, or you can punish it in order to release the spirit. But matter doesn't matter to these people. Only the spiritual and the super spiritual things matter. And that's a complete contradiction to what God says. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth and how we treat it, how we care for it, how we steward it, it matters. Our bodies matter. Other people matter. The, the good things that we have, our material possessions, they actually matter. Our work that we do with our hands and our minds, our work matters. And it matters, and we know it matters, because of the incarnation. Because Jesus actually came in the flesh. And he honors our bodies and our physical world by being present in it and participating in it. So the deceivers, the deniers, and then the, the do's and don'ters. I think I tried too hard to make them all D words, but you get the idea. The do's and don'ters, you know these people. These are the legalists. They were a plague in the early church. They're still a plague today. I grew up with some of them. I remember some of the legalists coming by our house because they had to uh, visit us because my mom wore men's clothing to church. <gasps> I mean, in other words, she wore like slacks, you know, slacks that I would never be caught dead in because they aren't men's clothing, actually. And, and she tried to dye her hair. It was turning a little gray, and it kind of messed up, and so it was purple. And so we went to church like that, and we got a visit from the elders. The problem is, as the elders show up, they found my dad smoking out back. <laughs> And so, so we were removed from the communion table. I am not kidding you. We were set aside until we repented. My dad didn't go to church for four years after that. The legalists, they were there present in Paul's time. They all said, it's, it's Jesus, yes, but something else as well. You have to follow this rule or do this activity or abstain from this. It's Jesus plus something. And when we start making it more and more difficult for people to follow Jesus, then we're missing the point. We're missing the gospel. This is what the gospel is about. And so Paul says to Timothy, these people are causing great harms, great harm, not only in the community, but in the world. Because if this is the case, if it's Jesus plus something, then Jesus died for nothing. If it's Jesus plus something, then we're going to end up being proud and boastful because it's part of our activity as well. If it's Jesus plus something, then it robs the gospel of that freedom, that life-giving gospel good news. And so these are three of the types of false teachings, these proprietors of fake news that were found in the early church. And I think we still see them kicking around today. The deceivers, the deniers, and the do's and don'ters. You'll remember that, I promise you, because um, I made it up and I spent time. So this is a danger to the church. And I'm just going to read what it says in the message translation, because I think it helps us to highlight this. It says, Unscrupulous con men will continue to exploit the faith. They're as deceived as the people they lead astray. As long as they are out there, things can only get worse. That's the warning. That's what we have to be aware of. That's what we have to resist. That's what we even have to sometimes silence, even if it means just 
turning off the radio, or unsubscribing from some kind of website, or things like that. Sometimes we have to silence those voices by not giving them power. We have to be aware of it. But the good news is this. These false teachers, even today, are fairly easy to spot. It's fairly easy to spot. And we have to be careful about this because we have to be careful about what we put at the core of our Christian faith, right? I've talked about this before. There's kind of three circles. The stuff that's at the core, the stuff really about Jesus. Uh, In the Apostles' Creed, as we went through that series together, we discovered the things that we really need to hold on to. And then there's things that are controversial and and that we have different opinions on. Uh, Some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, they will actually baptize infants. I don't think they're going to hell for that. (laughs) There's other people that will just dedicate infants, right? And so I understand there's some controversy around there, and we can have dialogue and conversation. And, And then there's just some things that are our personal preferences. You know, what color is the carpet? And do we meet at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock? You know, those kind of things. But it's amazing to me how some of those personal preferences get thrown into the center circle and become the hill that people want to die on when it comes to the church. I'll leave the church if this happens kind of thing. So we have to be careful what's at the core. But once we identify that core, using things like the Apostles' Creed, it's helpful sometimes. When we do that, then the false teachers, those who distract us, are fairly easy to spot. Paul says, there are people who reject authority. They refuse to submit to the authority that's established in the Bible and in the church. These people, Paul calls them rebellious. Another way to identify false teachers is, they, like I said, they talk the talk without walking the walk. They have no integrity in their lives. They, They stand up and say a good speech, but then when you go over to their house, it's a whole different story. And so we've got to watch for that kind of signal as well. And then they intentionally lead others astray for financial gain. And when we see that, we go, hey, something's not right here. Now, Paul was obviously aware of, and he studied, and he engaged with some of these false teachings. So I'm not saying today, just ignore them all and and put your head in the sand and be a good Christian. (laughs) We can engage with lots of teachings in the world. We shouldn't be afraid of that. Paul even quotes from some of the Greek philosophers and poets He knows his stuff. He knows his material. Don't be afraid of engaging in conversation with the world around us. We need to be participants in that. We shouldn't cloister ourselves away. How can we be salt and light if we're not engaged in the culture and engaged in the world around us? But when it comes down to it, in terms of spotting the false teachers, Paul says one of the best defenses is this. Know the truth. Know the truth. There's an old well-worn illustration that I hesitate to bring up because it's been used so many times and maybe used inappropriately, but the idea of counterfeit money. And the idea is that those who are trained to spot counterfeit money, the way that they train them is actually to know the real thing. And there's a guy in Canada, a blogger in Canada, he wondered if that was actually true. And so he contacted the Bank of Canada and they brought him into this weird isolated room, sat him down, and the first thing he did was study the real thing. And this is his conclusion. Training in identifying counterfeit currency begins with studying genuine money. He goes on to compare them, but that's the starting point. I think it needs to be the starting point for us. When it comes to the gospel, we need to, first of all, know the truth. If we know the real thing, 
If we know the truth about Jesus, then we'll be able to easily, or start to easily, identify that which is false. So how do we know the truth? Two things, in conclusion today, that Paul brings out in this passage. And there's lots of other things we can talk about, but I'm going to restrain it to these two things. Paul says in this passage, first of all, know your source, right? Know the person who's spouting these ideas. Know the person that's doing the teaching. Know your source. Paul draws out this very important lesson in the passage that was just read for us. He basically says to Timothy, you know me. You know me. You know my character. You know my reputation. You know my my body of teaching that I've been teaching to you. You know my suffering. You know how I've put my life on the line for these truths, that I'm willing to die for them. That counts for something. So when you hear all these other teachers, who are they? Why do you believe them? You know me, and knowing me gives a greater sense that you will also know the truth. But he takes it one step further. He says, Timothy, remember that you've been established in the faith by your grandmother and by your mother, by Eunice and by Lois, these two women of the faith who had a great reputation. And Paul reminds Timothy of his upbringing. As we celebrate Mother's Day, we remember grandmothers and mothers, and I know not all of them did, but some of them, they established us in the faith. I celebrate my own mom today. I remember when she came to faith at a critical time in her life. We were in Winnipeg, and I was only about three years old, and she was ready to take her life, to commit suicide. She was an alcoholic. She was smoking packs and packs of cigarettes a day, and she just cried out, God, if you're really there, change me. And she was changed, and remarkably so. And it was the entrance of God's grace into our whole entire family. And all my brothers were a little bit afraid of, you know, my dad, and of reading the Bible, because that was not something that you normally did. And so I was the youngest, and so mom took me aside to practice her new religion. (laughs) And it was awesome, because I got to know the faith from a very early age. I identify with Timothy in that sense. I had a mom who cared enough and took the risk. There was one time my dad found us and ripped the Bible up and chucked it in the fire. But my mom continued to read and to study. And eventually, I remember the day my dad was kneeling beside his bed with tears rolling down his eyes, giving his heart to Jesus. So these people that we know, Paul says, that's how we also know the truth. It's not only what you know, it's who you know. During this time of the pandemic season, which we're still kind of in, but during the time especially of restrictions, I was amazed at how some people would be so easily led astray by the latest headline or something they found on a, on a chat site on Facebook or some kind of thing that they couldn't really verify, but suddenly they were enthused about this newfound truth and they turned their backs on maybe their family or their friends or people that they know in order to pursue something from someone they have no idea about. They don't know this person's identity. They don't know this person's integrity. They don't know whether this person has a good reputation in the community, but somehow they've got a hold of their heart and soul and they're following after them. Paul says, be careful, know your source. And Timothy, you've got great sources. You know me and you know your mom and you know your grandma. And that's amazing foundation in the truth. 
But then the second thing he says is know your scripture. Because sources still do fail us. People still do mess up. So we can't put all of our hope just in the people we know. So Paul says at the end, the scripture is good and is God-inspired and it's useful. You should absolutely know it. The people are like a signpost that points us to the scriptures. This is what it says in the message. There's nothing like the written word of God for showing you the way to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the word, we are put together and shaped up for the tasks God has for us. Know the Scriptures, and they will do what? Point us to Jesus, because that's the ultimate truth. We realize that ultimately truth in the scriptures is very relational because Jesus says, I am the truth. And so truth isn't just you know, a, a body of knowledge. It's not just memorizing a bunch of verses to use as ammunition when we want to support our defense and, and make our point, make our case. The truth is actually found in Jesus. And the scriptures, Jesus says, are the things that point to me and so read the scriptures, not to amass knowledge just, but to be drawn closer to Jesus, who is ultimately the truth. Well, fake news is everywhere. We're going to be dealing with it for a very long time. It's even in the church. And Timothy and Titus were sent not only to preach the good news, but also to silence these false teachers for the sake of the church. And so sound teaching is so important if we are going to thrive in that organic sense. Our faith is based on a specific message that's been handed down to us. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was raised the third day according to the Scripture. We pass that along. Our faith is also a sacred trust. I don't know if you realize that, but what we've been instructed, we're committed to pass on to others. And what we believe affects how we live our lives. And so sound teaching is ultimately so important. Let me end with a verse from 2 Timothy verses four, or chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul says this to Timothy. You're going to find that there will be times when people will have no stomach for solid teaching, but will fill up on spiritual junk food, catchy opinions that tickle their fancy. They'll turn their backs on the truth and chase mirages. But you... Keep your eye on what you're doing. Accept the hard times along with the good. Keep the message alive. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your word, that we can hold it in our hands, that we can read it, that we have access to it. We thank you for the prophets, for the apostles, for those who have passed it down to others. And now it's our turn to know it, to love it, to be drawn closer to you through it, and to pass it on to the next generation. Help us to do that well. Help us to do that in a way that brings glory and honor to your name. May we honor this good news of Jesus by the way that we live our lives so that your truth might be known. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.